What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Today, we're going to try not to frighten you with how the NSA is hacking all of your stuff. As has been made public recently by the likes of Edward Snowden, you know, our information's not always safe, but how bad is that? And where did it start? And why is it happening? And where is it happening? That's what we need to know. So we went to the guy who knows all about it. This week, we are interviewing Shane Harris. Shane is the author of The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State, which won the New York Public Library's Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism. It was also named one of the best books of 2010 by The Economist. Shane also recently came out with a book on November 11th, so as of this recording just a few days ago. His newest book is titled At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. At War is really interesting. It talks about the new version of warfare, right? Like how this all came about during the Iraq War, how we used it to save countless American lives, how we were forced into this situation because we are, we are now fighting wars that we've never dealt with before. Information is the new gold. If you know who's calling who, where they are, what they're saying, what websites they're going on, you can track a lot of these things down and prevent the attacks before they happen. So that's what we talk with Shane about. We also talk about how they can look at your information and Facebook and Google and Gmail and all that Shane's also a writer at The Daily Beast. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Slate, The Washington Post, etc., etc. 
Going to get into the interview with Shane here in a minute. As always, we appreciate when you reach out and connect with us at Smart People Podcast. Sign up for our newsletter where we send out some of our favorite parts of the show, quotes, interviews, and the like. You can do that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Also, if you could leave us a review on iTunes, we very much appreciate your support. We do this for you and because it's fun, obviously. All right, here it is, our interview with Shane Harris. All right, Shane. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And first, I have to ask, you know, for more than a decade, you've covered national security, intelligence, cybersecurity. Your last book was The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. And now you just released At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. So with that said, do you ever use the internet a smartphone a computer email because i wouldn't if i were you right yeah i should probably stay off it right yeah um no it's it's funny i i um <clears throat> i think that in researching and reporting on these subjects i've become uh at first i became a lot more paranoid uh and then i think i'd try i think i think i felt like i learned a, a more about though how to try and stay safe online and the things that you can do to protect your communications and uh, and whatnot, and I've, I've taken some pretty you know basic steps in that area. Like I use a password locker, I use two-step authentication on a lot of things, and all these things that they sound like mumbo jumbo to your listeners. They're basically like the equivalent of you know putting you know better door locks on your house and uh, you know and just being more more sort of conscientious. Um, but yeah, I, I, it is something I think about though, um, and I think journalists especially. Uh, in the United States, have you know a couple of things to worry about. I mean, one is that there's obviously a real crackdown on a lot of our sources lately. So you worry about communicating with people and uh, you know whether or not you could be getting them into trouble by communicating with them. And then you know I've written a lot about foreign intelligence agencies and what they're doing, trying to steal information from companies and from people in the U.S. And journalists have been targets of foreign intelligence agencies. So it's something that I'm aware of, but I've just kind of had to come to to terms with it and try to be smart about how I uh, operate online and uh, and just uh, take the the most the, the the best steps I can to protect myself. Yeah, I mean, after reading your book, I actually felt a little less dorky about the fact that I have a piece of masking tape covering my uh, camera on my laptop. Right, right. You're, yeah, exactly. I really because people are like, what are, you, "What are you? You know, what what is this? What, you know, what are you so worried about?" And I'm like, "Well, you should just read this book, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you won't feel you won't feel so paranoid. It's not paranoid if they're watching you." Yeah. Well, the <laughs> the thing is, though, you know, and and the two step verification. I recently did that for my Gmail account because it. It did get hacked and it was a big pain. But I feel like, especially after reading your book and understanding how just intelligent and evolved these hackers are, can we really escape it? Or is it just make it a little bit more difficult and they'll go after people that matter? I think that's 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 one way of looking at it. I mean, a persistent hacker is who wants to get into someone's system is going to do whatever they have to do to get there, and no system is impenetrable. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we had news that J.P. Morgan, uh, you know, the bank, got penetrated by hackers that 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 could have gone. It sounds like they could have gone a lot farther into the bank's systems than they did, and this scared a lot of people in the security industries and and in the agencies as well because. 
banks are supposed to have the best security. So if they can go after banks and they can get into bank data, does that mean that you know the rest of us are sort of you know hopelessly defenseless? Um, you know, I, I think that you just have to take the most prudent steps that you can, but it's never going to be perfect. And if somebody really, really wants to get into your stuff. Um, they're probably going to find a way to do it. Now, I mean, I guess you can comfort yourself to some degree. Uh, it's sort of small comfort. It seems like a lot of the financial criminals out there um, who have been trying to do things like steal people's account data uh, and credit card information are going after banks and large merchants and seem to be targeting, you know, maybe targeting individuals less. It doesn't mean that they're not. There's still a lot of fraudsters out there. But, uh, you know, hopefully if you take some basic steps and just are smart about not opening attachments that you don't know where they came from and being careful what websites that you go to, I think you minimize your risk. But I don't think you can eliminate it. You know, you mentioned banks are supposed to have the best security. I would think that really the best security should be government security. Yeah. Is that not the case? Well, it depends on what part of government we're talking about. I mean, government as a whole, uh, it's difficult to talk about it that way. The Defense Department and the intelligence agencies uh, have generally very, very good security on a lot of their networks, and some of their networks are not even connected to the Internet. Um, That doesn't make it foolproof, but generally speaking, they've done a good job. But then there are civilian agencies that are woefully underprotected. Uh, in, In the past, even the Homeland Security Department, which is nominally the agency that's supposed to work with civilian agencies to defend their networks has received very poor grades from Congress on its security. So across the board, it's a very, very mixed bag. But generally speaking, the national security agencies uh, are pretty good. And I think that they've um, learned how to take really sort of you know, stringent measures. I mean, there was uh, an incident uh, a number of years ago where um, a piece of malicious software found its way onto uh, a network used by Central Command, U.S. Central Command, uh, which was a scary event because that network is actually was not connected to the internet, so no one knows precisely how it got in. It was probably on a, a remote thumb drive, and probably somebody. Uh, inadvertently infected a computer with it, and then it got loose in the network, and then that led to things like banning thumb drives and, and you know and banning uh, secondary media from being attached to computers. So the security agencies have had to take a lot of steps to really harden their systems. And if I think if you were working in an office at the NSA, it would not feel remotely like a regular office. There would be a lot of extra steps in place that would prevent you from. You know, hooking your iPhone, for instance, up to your computer, you probably couldn't do that. Um, and that's just the world that they live in. Those are the steps they've had to take. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that grabbed me about your book is I love the play on words of the military internet complex versus the military industrial complex. For our listeners who probably haven't read it because it just came out, what did you mean by that? What is this military internet complex? So the military internet complex is uh, an alliance between the military and the intelligence agencies and principally the NSA and a number of important companies in the U.S. to include large defense contractors, um, big communications companies including the ones that run the internet backbones in the U.S. and a lot of your sort of larger more important technology companies like Google and Facebook and Yahoo. And when I speak of this as an alliance – um, it's a fairly tenuous one. There are cases where all these sides are working together and there are times when actually they're at cross purposes. But but essentially what this complex is about is trying to uh, defend cyberspace from malicious intruders and defend information uh, and infrastructure 
uh, physical things that are connected to the internet, including our most important uh, infrastructures like our power grid, financial systems. Um, but also this complex has been directed at and oriented at offensive activity in cyberspace, fighting cyber wars, if you like. Um, and how it came together uh, is because the government, while it wants to operate in cyberspace as sort of a domain of warfare, as the military sometimes calls it, doesn't own the internet. It doesn't control the internet as a piece of hardware. You know, 85% of the infrastructure, the network infrastructure, the, the, you know, the tubes and the pipes in this country are in private hands. They're owned by companies. They're owned by ISPs. They're owned by technology firms. And so in order to defend that space and operate in it as the military and the intelligence agencies want to do, to do, they need the assistance and the cooperation of companies. So that's where this alliance is coming together. It's largely for the purpose of defending that network and also being able to, to operate offensively in it. Well, what's scary about that, and you cover this, is that these communications enterprises such as Google, AT&T, Verizon, Facebook, really anything we use to get on the internet, share information outside of our immediate community is open for government analysis, right? It, under lawful circumstances, yes. Uh, you know, the government has the ability to um, to come in and collect um, certain kinds of information. Um, they can collect met, what's known as metadata, uh, which is um, not the contents of your communication, but the records of uh, who you're calling and who you're in contact uh, we know now, uh, thanks to disclosures from Edward Snowden, that NSA has been collecting phone metadata uh, on Americans, that it has collected email and internet metadata as well. Um, there are some important limitations on this. I mean, the the NSA or the FBI cannot monitor and read your email or listen to your phone call without a warrant. They have to have a specific individual warrant to do that. But what we are seeing is that through this military internet complex, Companies are monitoring sort of the, the traffic that is moving over their network and looking for signs of malicious activity, potential intrusions, and sort of at this kind of metadata level, if you like. They are sharing in many cases some of that information with the government, and the government is in turn sharing information that it's seeing uh, as well. So you have kind of a, a flow of data going between these different entities that is not precisely spying and surveillance, but it is sort of um, knowledge and intelligence about what's on that network. And, and the NSA can't do that without the cooperation of the companies. That's why they're so vitally important to that enterprise. So we spoke with Jared Dean, and he was telling us how there's so much data being created that companies are trying to find ways to sort through this data. And you're talking about just maybe consumer data on Amazon or Netflix. How much data can the government, even the best people in the world, really sort through for somebody like myself to actually ever care? I think that it's, 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 certainly it's impossible for, for human beings to analyze and, and process all of that data on their own. I mean, we're talking about, you know, overwhelming amounts of information and, and it coming through in real time. What, what the intelligence agencies have tried to get good at and better at, and the companies as well, is trying to, to understand where are the places that they need to look and sort of what are the signatures they need to be watching for. So, for example, uh, if a bank is coming under attack, uh, and by attack, I mean, let's take uh, something called a denial of service attack, which happened a few years ago, where um, elements believed to be in Iran 
um, hijacked these large clusters of uh, computers in data centers and used them to send uh, huge volumes of internet traffic at the websites of several American banks, which caused the banks to crash because they sort of drowned in the data. Um, if you if you are the NSA and you're monitoring this and you see sort of where this is coming from in the network, that's something that in the future you're going to incorporate into your defensive strategy. So you're going to be looking for these kinds of attacks or perhaps coming from these addresses. They, they try and find essentially leads and information that can help them narrow down and focus on what they should be looking for. Um, that said, I mean, you're talking about some of these companies are probed thousands of times a day. The Pentagon's networks, they will tell you, are probed thousands of times a day. And you need automated systems to some degree to be able to scan all of this to try and find out, is it loaded with malicious software? Does it match some kind of a, what they'll say, a threat signature that tells us that this could be something that we need to watch out for? That process is largely being automated. And the government has spent you know, the past number of years developing automated systems to do that on their own networks and have been looking for ways to share that uh, with people in the private sector too. So this really, when we're talking about scanning all this volume and analyzing it for signs of malicious activity, this is largely being done by by computers, by people. And, you know, I want to get into kind of the how this affects international communities and relations and that war, obviously, as you discuss. But before getting into that, remaining on this, how it affects the individual, I, I get into this conversation sometimes with my dad. You know, a lot of people of maybe older generations talk about not wanting to give up their information, right? Wanting to keep a lot of this close to the chest. And then you have my generation and even younger that will put anything anywhere and just don't care. I mean, I, I pretty much don't care what I put out there. And you, I'm sure you hear this a lot. If I don't have anything to hide, and as you explain, this type of analysis, this data mining, hacking does help us in terms of finding terrorist threats and things. Should I just look the other way? Because oftentimes my dad will say, yeah, but the government gets a lot of things wrong. And I mean, yeah. you see it over and over and over again, yeah. right? Like now they're just letting people in the White House. We don't know what's going on. So <laughs> right. maybe I don't want them with my data. Maybe I'm just too trusting. It's generational. What are your thoughts on that? I think it is generational. I mean, your, your father probably, I don't know how old he is, but ch chances are he remembers uh, a time in the 1960s and the 1970s when the FBI and the NSA were um, uh, caught up in a number of scandals where it was found that the government was illegally monitoring the communications of political dissidents and war activists and people like Martin Luther King and even some Supreme Court justices. And th this was a huge scandal that in the 1970s led to a number of the laws um, that we still have on the books that restrict um, what the government is able to do with your information and when it is authorized to to monitor you, to spy on you. Um, that, I think, that, that, that memory was searing not just for people in your dad's generation but for the whole generation of people who then grew up in the intelligence agencies. And you, you'll, you'll, you'll meet people who kind of joined the FBI or the NSA in the sort of late 70s period after all of these scandals happened. And what they'll tell you is that it was always drilled into them. We do not spy on Americans. We do not monitor Americans for political speech. We do not monitor uh, anything that is protected by the First Amendment. That prohibition starts to get strained after the 9-11 attacks. 
Uh, and the reason for that is because, of course, the terrorists who attacked on 9-11 were in the United States and were using this communications infrastructure that for a long time uh, the, the agencies had said, no, you can't monitor that because it involves Americans' personal information. So I think that the, the kind of the reflexive tendency to say, to, to say like we shouldn't trust the government stems from that period of time when they did abuse that level of trust. And at 9-11, we've seen a lot of these rules bent and in some cases even broken. And I think for a lot of people that said, see, look, this is proof that you have to constantly be keeping tabs on what the government is doing with your information, that even a generation of people who were raised up in those agencies not to monitor U.S. personal information after 9-11, a lot of those constraints were lifted and the American public didn't know about it. So I think there's just a healthy skepticism <laughs> that I've had to exercise too in writing about the intelligence agencies. And look, I use Facebook. I use Twitter. I put a lot of my information out there too. In my generation, I'm 38. You know, is far more comfortable doing that. But I think you can kind of <clears throat> be somewhere in the middle, right? You can, you should, you you can feel comfortable putting out the amount of information about yourself that you want to. Um, you know, using your privacy settings on Facebook uh, to decide who sees it. But at the same time, you know, be skeptical about what the government is doing with your information. Um, and you know, and remembering too that the government has, you know, the government has the ability to arrest people. The government has law enforcement authority. That's what makes them different, I think, than you know, a company like Facebook, where yes, you're giving them lots of information about yourself that they might mine for marketing purposes, but but nobody with from Facebook is going to have the authority to you know to lock you up. Right. No, that's a good point. And I mean, I know I understand that that side of the argument. I think the skepticism that you mentioned is definitely warranted you you don't want to start down that path because you don't know where it always leads so maybe you you know search for something you perhaps shouldn't have on the internet but it's it's maybe it's just an interest of yours you don't want that all of a sudden to raise these red flags and now you're listened to and screened at the airport and everything like that so there is a boundary there yeah i think there's a boundary and you know People are becoming all the time more and more fluent in this technology and understanding, you know, what not to put on social media. I mean, you know, there, you know, people who are in their mid twenties who have had to go through the process of graduating from college and getting a job in the past three or four years um, probably have experience with, you know, having embarrassing pictures of themselves on Facebook, <laughs> right? And, you know, and maybe you won't do that again. So I think there's there's just sort of a natural learning process about oversharing, um, and. and and you know, and if you want to factor in, uh, you know, uh, to your decision not to post too much information um, that you don't want it to be available to somebody in the government, you know, hey, that's that's a pretty good reason to be uh, careful about what you post too. Yeah, it's true. Although I've often said this to people, they're like, "Oh, those pictures on Facebook or whatever could come back to haunt you." And I said, by the time I get to a, a position where they can haunt me everyone will have this so yeah. i'm not worried and i mean right. we see it already right like, boat, yeah. i mean no longer are you going to have presidents that say they didn't smoke weed because they sure. did i'm telling you that you know yeah. so of course of course there's sort of we're all in the same boat and it's um all sins are forgiven the more that uh, more people are committing them i guess yeah especially in politics these days <laughs> yeah exactly exactly standards have changed yeah so all right let's let's get into a lot more of even what your book is about and a lot of your work is about how this revolution really came to be through warfare could you give us a little bit of a history lesson on when this all really went into play and and when i say this actually what is this what are we doing and how is it changing the landscape of war 
Sure. Well, I, the first chapter of the book, um, which I think is a, is a good starting point for this, looks at um, how the military and the NSA in particular used offensive cyber operations or cyber warfare in Iraq. Um, and and, and, and the, the project there was um, that the NSA managed to build an infrastructure in Iraq that could monitor every phone call and every email and every text message that was being sent in the country. And once they had that information, they were able to pinpoint the location of uh, terrorists and insurgent fighters uh, in the country, the people who were planting roadside bombs and who were attacking U.S. troops and who were leading the insurgency there. Um, this was one of the first times that on a really large scale – uh, the the military and the intelligence agencies went out and actively hacked into their adversaries' networks, doing things like um, not just monitoring their phone calls, but sending them fake te text messages to lure them into traps, implanting spyware on websites and forums that are frequented by jihadis and other terrorists. Um, it really, you know, I, hacking them essentially, hacking their networks, getting into them, manipulating them, spying on them, and it worked with really lethal efficiency. Uh, you know, the the thousands of fighters were removed from the battlefield because the NSA was able to get into these communications networks and pinpoint the locations um, of these individuals. When one guy I write about in the book, uh, a guy named Bob Stasio, who was a young lieutenant in the army who did a lot of this work, he likened it to I don't know if you remember the HBO show The Wire. I don't know if you were a fan of The Wire. I was going to ask you about that. No joke. I had that written down because yeah. it's one of my favorite shows of all time. And you kind of see what they were doing with like burner phones and yes. all of that stuff yeah yeah so bob modeled himself after lester lester freeman was the sort of you know the veteran kind of quiet detective on the show <laughs> who's the guy who instead of he's not out there on the street so much he's he's sitting in the office and he's dissecting all of the call records on the burner phones that the drug dealers are using and he's using that to build a diagram of their network and to figure out who actually runs the gang and who are the important people. And Bob Stasio did the same kind of thing. He just took the same sort of principles and ideas and he applied them towards what happened in Iraq. I mean, he, and he's a really good example of this kind of generational thinking. I mean, he was somebody who was in his late 20s when he goes over to Iraq. He's totally fluent with technology. He's grown up with it. Um, all this to him seems intuitive. And natural, like, well, of course you can use people's communications to figure out where they are. I mean, that's just obvious, right? Well, it wasn't obvious to an earlier generation of people, at least not in the same on the same kind of intimate human level. So a lot of what I write about in the book is how people like Bob, you know, have kind of become this new vanguard of kind of hybrid soldiers and spies, that there are people who are becoming really adept at breaking into computer networks and doing that not just for the purposes of gathering information, but for knowing how you can physically locate people, um, which is something that is, you know, is going to be done a lot more in wars that we fight in the future. The, the military is right now planning for a future in which cyber attacks and cyber intelligence gathering Takes, a play, takes its place just alongside air power and sea power uh, and land power in the wars that we fight in the future. And Iraq is the, really the first place where I think that concept was tested. Now, was it Iraq, the breeding ground for that, because of the type of war, basically this, this terrorist-type warfare where you can hide in the mountains and you know move? It, it's, it's just not the stand in front of each other and shoot and we know where the battlefield is. Is that why it, it became so prevalent during this war? 
I think that was that was part of it. I mean, what motivated um, intelligence officials and ultimately President Bush, who signed off on this program, um, was that we were having a lot of trouble fighting a conventional war with an insurgent network. I mean, you can't, it, it was challenging our notions of what warfare is. And the people at the NSA realized that the insurgents being a network themselves uh, had this vulnerability that we could exploit, which was their communication system. And, and in some ways, this is, this kind of goes back to, you know, for hundreds of years, what intelligence gathering has been about, spying on your enemy, intercepting his messages, figuring out what he's about to do. They took it, though, to many levels higher uh, in, in Iraq. And I think that it was a combination of, of, a, of an adversary that was um, highly adaptive. Uh, we needed to be adaptive as well. But also, this was sort of a bit of a right place at the right time. The, the, the director of national intelligence at the time was a guy named Mike McConnell who had run the NSA in the mid-1990s and actually started its first what was then called the Information Warfare Unit. So sort of the early days of what we're talking about, which when it was sort of still largely theoretical. Uh, and then the guy at the time running the NSA uh, was a man named Keith Alexander who was very much um, a student of these kinds of techniques uh, and a believer in the power of them. So the fact that these two men were, were in place at very senior levels in the U.S. intelligence uh, community at the time was also a factor here. They were the ones who brought these ideas forward to the president and said, we think that this has real potential. This could help us turn the tide of the war. And ultimately it did. They were right. So is it safe to say we, for the most part, we didn't necessarily invent this idea, but we were the first to master it? I and think when I say was, we, obviously, yeah. uh, Americans, even though this is listened globally, and I will talk about its global implications as well. But Sure. I mean, I think that it's fair to say that it had never – this kind of cyber intelligence gathering with, a, with an aim towards integrating it into combat, and I call that cyber warfare – um, we were the first to do this on this scale, definitely. There have been some examples of it that you'll find here and there, like when Russian forces invaded Georgia many years ago, there was a cyber element to that. They used some computer hacking techniques to disrupt communications in Georgia. Um, the Russians uh, are believed to have been behind uh, a large denial-of-service attack that was launched on Estonia many years ago. Um, but those were sort of, you know, kind of almost like harassment uh, operations. This is, a, this is a case where this was fully integrated into the war plan, um, where we were covering the entire country, sucking up these communications, breaking the networks, manipulating people with information, taking what we learned about the location of fighters, giving that to uh, combat forces on the ground, who then either arrested or killed them. And that cycle just kept repeating itself day after day for many months. So I think that you know, we can lay, lay claim to that kind of sort of pioneering that kind of warfare. Well, and then I think as you explain this idea of cyber warfare, hacking, really how beneficial it can be for the hacker to get into these systems has now gone global. There are, you know, China's is, is, doing a lot in that space and now it's become warfare without any boots on the ground yeah i mean i, I think that there's um sort of a globe pervasive global campaigns by many countries of espionage um uh, what china is doing is is taking thousands and thousands of hackers working you know around the clock and trying to to basically break into as many corporations and as many government agencies in the U.S. as they possibly can. And what they're principally interested in 
is not just figuring out what our government is up to. That's sort of classic espionage. But the Chinese are very interested in getting proprietary information and trade secrets and plans and internal communications from companies in this country in order to give them to companies in China so that they have a competitive advantage in the global marketplace. Um, so this is you know, a classic sort of form of industrial espionage or economic espionage. Um, but they're using these, these same hacking techniques that are used to steal information are the hacking techniques that you would use to get into a computer uh, and uh, manipulate the, um, the physical devices that it controls. So if you know how to get into a system and steal someone's data, you probably know how to get into a system that runs a power turbine uh, as well that you could cause to, to break and uh, to just shut down uh, the power on a portion of the grid. That's what actually has U.S. intelligence officials deeply concerned about China in particular is that right now they've limited their activities to espionage, but that it would be very easy for them to ratchet it up a notch and take it into this, to the realm of actually trying to break physical infrastructure that is connected to these networks. You know, when I think about that, and as much as the world has become segmented and we get to, due to our geographic location, oftentimes enjoy a, you know, uh, this the, the barriers that we have. The world is global, and so what affects our economy directly impacts theirs. When we had the real estate boom, or the tech, or I'm sorry, the the bust, uh, or the tech bust. I mean, we saw those implications globally. Why would somebody like China want to essentially? demolish a lot of our infrastructure and really cause these disruptions when they themselves own so much of our stuff. Yeah, you're right. And this is, I mean, and this is what people will will point out. And I think rightly so when we talk about, you know, the scenario I just outlined, what if China were to go from espionage to breaking, you know, shutting down a piece of the power grid or launching an attack that caused a panic in the financial sector, they have a strong incentive not to do those things. Mm. And I think that's why they haven't really escalated from the level of espionage um, up to those kinds of attacks. Because as you say, you know, they have no interest in taking out the banking system or, or large banks because they're one of our biggest investors and lenders. <laughs> right. So it, it'll come back on them. And it's actually something that, you know, U.S. officials have tried without much success to persuade their counterparts in China, which is to say, look, the things that you guys are doing – in terms of stealing, you know, secrets from us uh, and our corporations, you know, you're not acting like an economic power. You're, these are not things that you can do in a global economy. Uh, you have to abide by certain rules and certain standards, and this is not acceptable. The Chinese look at that and they think that we're kidding ourselves. Hmm. Why wouldn't they, Why wouldn't they use this apparatus for their own advantage? Why wouldn't they take this information rather than innovate products on their own? It's a different way of looking at. You know, economies and markets, and and uh, and ultimately, I think it's a different kind of morality uh, as well. And given that, I mean, I don't want to sit on our high horse because I don't know this for a fact, but I'd imagine we're doing something along those lines. Yeah, we are. I mean, there's no. We know now for a fact because we've seen the documents of it that uh, that Snowden released that the U.S. does in fact, hack into foreign corporations uh, and steal information from them and steal information about their plans and, and, and their operations. But the difference here, and a lot of people think this is a different uh, a distinction without much of a meaningful difference, is that we do not turn around, at least officials say we do not, turn around and give that to our companies. So for instance, we don't hack into the computers of Airbus and give that information that we find to Boeing. Yeah. 
um, the Chinese will hack into you know an American manufacturer and give it to the competitor in China. What we say we do with that information is we use that to inform our policy making, our strategy. But if you really kind of think about it, well, what does that mean? So if we are learning information about where Venezuela plans to drill for oil and we start building that into our thinking about negotiations and about energy policy, well, that information is probably going to trickle out in the interactions that we have with American corporations. So we may not be directly handing over secrets that we stole, but our knowledge and our insights that we gain from that process, I think, does find its way over um, to, to the private sector. That, that's a very gray and kind of squishy process, and it's not as direct as China. But you know, it is a, it's not economic espionage, but it's uh, you know, espionage deforms, informs our decision making on a number of levels and sometimes indirectly, I think. Sure. Well, getting back to one of the things I know you do a lot of research on is the future of war. Where do you see this going? How do you see this playing out in the next decade and then decades and century? Well, I don't think that we're going to replace conventional uh, boots on the ground type war uh, or air wars with cyber war. I don't think that we'll find our just firing off uh, malware at China and they fire it back, but we never actually have a military exchange. I think what's going to happen is that cyber warfare is going to take its place alongside other forms of conventional war and that in the next decade what you'll see is that the military will train its personnel in computer network operations and hacking and in cyber defense and cyber warfare the same way they train people to be uh, to work in uh, the infantry the same way they train pilots the same way they train people train people to work on submarines it will kind of become a discipline within the military and when we fight wars in the future and particularly if we fight large-scale ones cyber will just be another weapon in the arsenal just like a, it'll be a system like a, a tank or an, an aircraft or a missile um, and I, I think that it will drive a lot of our planning for the way that the military uh, in this country is going to look. We may see that we um, have a greater dependence on cyber and we start to draw down some of our dependence on air war, for instance. I mean, we'll, 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 there'll, there'll be sort of a, a mixture that we'll have to get right. What's, what's interesting to me and, and instructive is that Cybersecurity and spending on cyber warfare is really the only part of the defense budget that's actually growing. Um, the defense budget is being slashed right now. It's under a lot of under a lot of strain. But cyber is a place where there's a lot of new spending, and I think what that shows you is that this is going to become both sort of a discipline in its own right, but also um, there will be cyber dimensions to, to other forms of warfare as well. So we're to you know for the new planes that we're building have to have the ability you have to have the ability to defend those aircraft. Uh, because they are basically flying software platforms, um, you know, modern weaponry that we're using in war is all uh, networked. I mean, soldiers go into battle today wearing gear that literally is networked communications gear. That all has to be protected. So cyber sort of plays a realm in, um, in all of the other forms of warfare um, that we're, we've uh, have a long tradition of. Well, Shane, this this stuff is really interesting. And and your book, the newest book, just came out a couple of days ago as of this recording. So I think it was the 11th that came out, right? That's right. Yep, November 11th. Uh, and it's At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. I love that title. Uh, but it's, it's great. It's a good read in terms of, I mean, I read solely nonfiction. And 
I beat myself up dragging through some books. So I love, and a lot of the people we interview, getting books that are well-written, easy to follow, but chock full of just really good lessons and things we should know about as people on this planet. So great job on that. I wish you the best of luck. Where else, uh, is there anywhere else that you could send our listeners? Do you write elsewhere other things you want to let them know about? Sure, absolutely. And thanks for saying that about the book. I appreciate it. Um, uh, uh, Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Shane Harris. Uh, I also am a senior correspondent for The Daily Beast, uh, thedailybeast.com, where I write about a lot of these issues. So people can uh, find me there as well. And uh, uh, yeah, those are probably the, the, the places where you're most likely to run into me on a daily basis in cyberspace. <laughs> or, or we can Google you or Facebook you, but uh, you know, just make sure you put up your firewalls and clear your cookies and all that good <laughs> stuff, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Everyone will be screened. That's right. Well, Shane, thank you so much for taking time out to talk yeah, with me absolutely. today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good one. Okay. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Hey there, and welcome back to Smart People Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Shane Harris. Speaking of the interview, with the interview in the news and all of the hacking that went on with Sony and the allegations of North Korea... Cyber warfare is definitely going to be in the forefront of our lives. So we're this is just something new that we're going to have to deal with. And I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Shane. Uh, I, I actually did find it fascinating, and I know that we're just scratching the surface with it. So it'll be really interesting to see how we as the United States reacts to this. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. If you did, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review and rating there. We truly do appreciate when you guys do that. It lets us know what you think of the show, as well as putting those ratings out there really gets some attention for the show. And we really do appreciate when you guys take the time to to provide some, some feedback and ratings of the show. As we close up the holiday season here, I want to remind you that you can still shop through our Amazon link. Just head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and click on the Amazon banner, or you can use our direct link, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, and that just allows us to get a little kickback from Amazon when you make your purchases. It's at no cost to you. It's completely on Amazon, and it's a big help to the show to keep us up and running and we really do appreciate when you guys uh, make your purchases through Amazon. If you want to reach out to Chris or I, don't forget that you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or you can send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. We love hearing from you guys. Love getting guest suggestions or just feedback for the show. Really do like having conversations with you guys so go ahead and write in. All right, guys. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of Smart People Podcast, and we will see you next week.